In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2023 seminar coverage. Hello, PaizoCon. Welcome to Into the Darklands. This is a panel where we're going to be talking about the titular Darklands, a lot of things connected to it, and maybe bringing you up to date on how things are going down in the Darklands. It's been a while since we've checked in on them. We figured uh, we'd bring on some amazing people to talk to you about just what's going on with the Darklands and its all related environs. I'm Luis Loza. I'm creative director for Pathfinder on the rules and lore side. And I'm going to go around uh, clockwise on my screen. That starts with James. If you mind introducing yourself, James. Yeah, don't mind at all. I'm James Jacobs. I'm uh, the narrative creative director for Pathfinder, the, the, the dark half of uh, Luis's. Uh cohort i guess <laughs> uh next would be john i'm john compton i'm a senior developer working on the pathfinder adventure path line including uh the sky king's tomb adventure path which does a lot of darklands times i'm vanessa hoskins i'm a, <laughs> i'm a developer on the narrative team uh and have recently worked on the Darklands adventure. So I'm here to help fill in some details about what we, we did during that process, maybe. Hi, I'm Eleanor Farron. I am a senior developer in the Rules and Lore team uh, working on the Lost Omens line. And hi, Helm. Yeah, and I think this is going to be kind of a, a little uh, looser there's a lot of stuff going on that we have talked about already over the past weekend. So if you hadn't checked out uh, our panels yesterday on Lost Omens material and adventure material, make sure to check those out when uh, replays go live or you can go check the video on demand right now to do so to catch up on a lot of details. But I think there's still a little bit of, of, of fun stuff we get to reveal and talk about here. Uh, and if we're going into the dark lanes, I think it makes sense that we start up at the surface and then make our way down. So I'm going to take a moment here to talk about High Helm, uh, which is uh, the next Lost Omens book that's coming out next month. Uh, you've probably heard that it's all about dwarves and the amazing city of High Helm built into the Emperor's Peak, which itself is uh, connected down to the Darklands through a variety of tunnels and other interesting ways of getting down there uh, referred to as the depths if you saw our panel yesterday you'll you'll know that um high helm is broken up into three main layers but below that there are still people living in the mountain underground and i kind of all throughout uh the area so the dark lands are something that are immediately accessible uh from high helm though i don't really recommend doing so in fact a lot of the guards in high helm are, are dedicated to protecting uh people from the the dangers that come up through High Helm and stopping people from going into High Helm if uh, you know, they're trying to do so. They don't want people to go down there. Very bad. No good. Don't do it. And they can't stop everybody, though. Right. So we're going to get into the Darklands, whether or not they want us to. But the one thing I wanted to bring up about High Helm that we hadn't had a chance to talk about before are some of the deities that you're going to be learning about in High Helm that will hopefully keep you safe when you decide to go down into the Darklands. And Eleanor, you helped me out here uh, when we were developing this book to uh, you know, flush out some of these deities a little bit. Specifically, we're talking about the Dwarven Pantheon. There are a lot of dwarf 
gods that we've mentioned throughout the years in Pathfinder and High Helms, our first real deep dive into a lot of these gods. And there's eight new deities. Well, new is a strong word. Eight fully fleshed out deities in, in this book. Do you want to talk about one or two of these deities that you're really into or, or enjoyed reading when we were developing this book? Sure. Um... Yeah, as, as Louise mentioned, the Dwarven Pantheon has been around for a long time. We've named them all, we know their, uh, all their roles, uh, but we never really got into them very much. Um, at the very tale of first edition, uh, Magrim got an article, and that's about it. Um, in Knights of Last Wall, Trude, uh, not Trude, um, Coles. yes, Coles. The, the uh, Oath Keeper showed up as a deity that was popular among among some of the knights. And in fact, because of the Whispering Tyrant and all of that, the Dwarven Pantheon's actually been spreading. Uh, and, and one of my favorite details about, about High Helm is they mentioned Trude the Mighty, uh, who, is, who I, was, I was thinking of in the first place, um, the Dwarven God of Strength and Might. Uh, but he was virtually unknown outside of Highhelm and the Dwarven Halls uh, in other places. But now he's starting to spread, to the, and and now he's starting to get prayers from his, like orcs and half elves, and and he's sitting there going like, I don't I don't know what to do with this. Like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I mean, he still he still answers those who are looking for might, but it's got to be very strange. To basically be an online recluse and then an orc who you haven't seen in 6,000 years since uh, the the quest for the sky and the war between the orcs and dwarves. Just like, hey, uh, I know we may not be cool, but do you think you could give me a hand here? Is, um, okay. Uh, <laughs> another fun fact about Trude is, um, you know, you've heard about Caden Kalian and how he likes to sort of to, to tangle with um, flings. That uh, uh, some spicy people. Uh, Calistria comes up a lot. Uh, I think he's hit on Disney a few times and usually doesn't get anywhere with that. But actually, another one of his uh, pieces on the side is Trude, um, <laughs> which uh, I don't. I don't actually know what the dwarves make of that. I don't think we get uh, to go into that. But we do know what his sister. Uh, true sister Bulka thinks of it, which is uh, hurry up and bag that dude. <laughs> what you doing, dude? <laughs> bag that guy. <laughs> oh my Put a ring on it, or he's gonna slip off. Which this uh, is the best is information I have ever gotten on any panel I have ever been on or bared witness to. Yeah, that brings up the classic questions that we have to bring up in any setting or lore meeting, which is like. <laughs> Who among the gods hasn't been Caden Kalian's side piece at one point or another? <laughs> yeah, I think James may, Jacobson may answer that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that he, seems he, he like that's a bit spicy even for Caden Kalian. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, <laughs> I uh, thought this was into the Darklands, not the real deities of Galarian. Come on. <laughs> Look, if I'm you think there isn't some, year, some spicy relationship <laughs> down in the Darklands, I don't know what to tell uh, you. Get to Pathfinder <laughs> Infinite, everybody. I need, I need <laughs> tales tomorrow, right? Uh, anyway, you were talking about Folka. Who's she? Uh, she's the dwarven goddess of marriage and love. Um, mm -hmm. 
And 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 we have a number of love deities in our setting, Shailen being the most prominent. Um, and I think one of the most loved and all-encompassing. Um, Volka is friends with Shailen. They've got the same interests. She does come off a lot more like somebody who reads a lot of fan fiction. And to the point where it's sort of an inside joke among her family that they can hear her like screaming in rage in the other room when something doesn't go in the way she likes or, or squealing when she gets to the good bits. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> There's a reason that she's been like uh, uh, knuckling down on her brother to, to put, put, put Kate and Kaylian in the bag. You don't know how good you have it. Um but but well, uh yeah, Bulka Bulka I think has picked up a lot of things from Shailen, which is truly appreciating love even even if Dwarven tradition gets in the way. Um yeah. she she wishes to bless any relationship that comes truly from love, to the point where if one of her priests messes that up, she she is going to smite them hard. <laughs> <laughs> So Boca is, you know, got a marriage and committed relationships. Trude has got a bravery and strength. We also have Angrad, got a fire, war, and tradition. Drangve is the god of debt, pursuit, and vengeance. Uh, she's all about getting your money back from debts. Uh, Fulgret is the mother of the uh, Dwarven pantheon. She's the god of children, hearts, and mothers. There's also Grundanar, who's the god of friendship alliances, family, and truth. Uh, you mentioned Coles earlier, who's the god of duty honor and promises, and Magrim, who is the dwarven god of death, fate, and the underworld. You get to learn all about them in High Helm, but for now, I think that's as long as we can dabble in High Helm before we move on to talk a little bit about Sky King's Tomb. I figured, um, John, you can uh, give people a little bit of insight into what Sky King's Tomb is, how much uh, Darklands stuff is going on there, and then maybe pass it on to Vanessa to maybe give us a few secrets about some of the back matter that's going to be showing up in there. Before we land with, I think, uh, the big uh, back matter talk that uh, James will have with a very specific article in that third volume. So, John, if you want to take it away with Sky King's Tomb. Sounds good. So, Sky King's Tomb is a level 1 through 10, three-part adventure path that is, that unless you really try to uh, change things up, can be 100% underground. Um, and so, as you're going to start in High Helm, you're going to, over the course of the adventure path, uh, go a little bit deeper and deeper under, uh, into the Darklands each time, a little bit uh, further and farther away from civilization as you know it. Um, and one of the really key pieces of it um, is that during the Dwarves' quest for Sky, their upward migration about 10,000 years ago when Torag said, go to the surface, and they're like, okay, Torag, um, is that the quest for Sky almost <laughs> fell apart. Look, I can characterize this how I want, Vanessa. I hear you laughing. Um, <laughs> Vanessa normally uh, has the dignity to mute herself before laughing at me on stream. <laughs> <laughs> Never! Oh, late panels, mute. everyone. Uh, late convention panels. Yeah, well, well. So, um, <laughs> but, but the idea is that the quest for Sky uh, was you know, centuries long, generations long. It almost fell apart uh, numerous times, but there was this figure called Targic, uh, one of the dwarves who then was eventually made their high king once they reached the surface, um, who really refocused them, got them to the surface, and although dwarves keep really good records, um, there have, I mean, there's been 10,000 years, like, there's been a lot that's been lost to the point where Targic has almost become more legendary than historical. Um, 
And in the course of the adventure path, uh, your characters are going to find some interesting clues that point to uh, some of the some of the forgotten history of the quest for Sky and Targic and his legacy. Um, and that's going to take you deeper and deeper underground, primarily within that first level of the Darklands, Narvoth. Um, and uh, just a disclaimer that I provide anytime I talk about Sky King's Tomb is, yeah, it's a really dwarf-heavy adventure path in some of its themes and, and narrative, but it is not a dwarf-only adventure path. There are tons and tons of hooks for playing PCs of any ancestry or class uh, that you want to bring into it. Um, so be ready with whatever you got. Yeah, Vanessa, speaking of being ready, I think there's a lot of fun material that you will get to discover and, and earn as you're playing through the AP. Is there any fun stuff in the back matter that you think people should be on the lookout for or any particular articles that you're excited to share a little bit about? Uh, absolutely. Um, so I know that in a, a few of them, we've got a lot of interesting new creatures. There's like a, a new Algathu that's been uh, stuck in or wandering around the dark lands for quite some time. So uh, folks get to see that. Um, there's, uh, we did some new things with the Ulatkini, uh, which were sort of the, the fish people that live underground, um, trying to explore them and their culture and what that looks like when they're not under Algothu influence. Uh, here's one that we've got right now. Um, they have developed like their own sort of martial arts fighting style. Uh, some of them are discovering how to, to, harness different magical powers without the aid or influence of the Algothu. Uh, so there's there's one of our Algoth uh, uh, Ulekini uh, mind reavers, I think is what we end up calling them, uh, who have these psychic manifestations that they can use when they take the time to empower their minds when not under uh, mind control. And so that's a, a cool thing that we get to explore, not only in the back matter, but in the adventure as well. Uh, there's also all sorts of interesting new items. I know that uh, John has mentioned on another panel that we have a bunch of relics, uh, these dwarven artifacts that the PCs get to find and uh, that are not only historically significant, but are relatively powerful. And as relics, they get to increase in power as the PCs do important or historical or thematically appropriate things to unlock the power of these of these relics uh in in addition there are some new archetypes uh some of them are uh, very weird and almost disturbing uh, and others are are more straightforward um one of which i'll talk about is uh there's a, a, a like a, a stone there's a couple stone-based uh, archetypes that you'll see that allow you to empower your character's body and become living stone, uh, or perhaps just use it as a tool in your you know, fighting style. Uh, so I think people are going to have a lot of fun with those as well. And one of the, the pieces of back matter that I am most excited about, uh, we have an entire... Uh, an entire article about cave worms. So folks are familiar with like the standard rock eating cave worm and the crimson cave worm that is immune to fire and breathes fire. Uh, we not only go into cave worms that we talk about their life cycle. There's a there's a whole little brood of baby cave worms. Aren't they cute? Uh, um, yes, they are. <laughs> I'm sure we don't have this art because you might have a hungry brood of cave worms trying to eat you at some point. Oh no, we wouldn't do that. Here's the question, Vanessa. How big is each sure. one of those cave worms? About the size of a small dog. 
Uh, so I can pick up a cute one and wander off with it. Oh, I mean, if you can keep it from eating your arm, sure. Oh, no, it's going to have a cave worm in one arm and a grindle grub in the other and just kind of walk <laughs> off happily. It's like Look, one of those, those uh, puzzles where it's like got a wolf, a sheep. <laughs> yeah, Are you saying so, that she's dual uh, wielding the worms? Yes. <laughs> one of them has the agile. You'll have to buy the books to find out which one. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we've got some really good stuff. We talk about uh, cave worm mating habits and what they like to eat um, and why they go after people sometimes and why they leave people alone sometimes. Um, so everything you wanted to know and didn't know that you wanted to know and probably don't want to know about cave worms. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, I'm going to ask James, you wrote one of the Backmiter articles, the one in, in Sky King's Tomb number three. Can you tell us a little bit about your article, Return to the Darklands, and what that's all about? Oh, boy. Yeah, I can. Um, oh, boy. So before I do that, uh, I'm going to try and travel back to the dawn of, of Paizo history. Um, when we first started doing Pathfinder stuff, what, 20 years, 20, 18 years ago or something like that, we knew we wanted to have some sort of big, expansive underground region uh, you know, for players to explore and, and fight monsters and all that. And we came up with the idea for the Darklands, three-tiered underworld. And we did Into the Darklands for uh, one of our very first Lost Omens kind of softcover books. And it went into all sorts of details about it. That was a 3.5 book. And then from that point on, we shifted over to doing Pathfinder First Edition. And uh, while we kind of went back to uh, the Darklands a couple of times there with things like a, uh, there was a player guide about... Uh, Darklands Heroes, there was a Monsters of the Darklands Revisited book, and most adventures that had big dungeons always had like this tunnel off to the side that leads down to the Darklands. We had a couple of adventures that were set on the Darklands. We never really did much with the Darklands in first edition in the form of like a big, you know, book that uh, really explored them. They kind of just lingered in, in, you know, the background. And uh, it's a book that I've wanted to uh, uh, do for some time. I mean, it's it's got, not only is there some really interesting stuff below the NRC region, there, there's some fun stuff that Latian Shaw with the clicking caverns and other stuff. Uh, there's like a, a Yosoki Ratfolk Empire and, and uh, who knows what's under like Arcadia or Casmaron uh, or other parts of the world. But um, when it came to uh, working on this one, we uh, sort of hit a weird sort of unexpected bump along the road. And that was the whole um, remastering project, which is a result of uh, the OGL situation that happened earlier in the year. And part of the problem there is that more than almost any other part of Galarian, the Darklands are really, really deeply entrenched in this sort of, of the traditions of, of the OGL and a lot of the creatures and lore and monsters and stuff like that from uh, that, uh, that resource. And going forward, uh, those are not going to be things that we're going to be able to reach into as, as much for our content. So, um, and we didn't really have a good place to talk about that. So uh, we decided at the last minute uh, to put this article into the last volume of, into, of uh, Sky King's Tomb. So that if you wanted to go beyond the, the uh, caverns and underground reaches that you explore in that adventure path, then you would have these, you know, sort of this update, this return to the Darklands presents it for a second edition. Um, the article itself is pretty brief, pretty short. The, the framing device is basically uh, Kariah Asmarine, who is a Pathfinder, uh, who 
in the very early days of Pathfinder, we had her set up as the first one to explore the Darklands. She reported back in the form of a, a Pathfinder volume, I believe it was 44, which is all about like, here's what I found down deep underground and was the first person from the surface world to really explore that. In this article, it's revealed that she kind of did a few, she, she fiddled with the truth a little bit. Uh, there was this big threat in the underground world that she wanted to protect uh, people on the surface from. Uh, because if they knew about it, she feared it would cause uh, panic. And uh, so she kind of, there's more fiction, I guess, in the in-world Pathfinder Volume 44 than fact. And um, that's sort of our in-world mechanic for why there's going to be some pretty significant changes to how the Dark Lines work. And uh, I guess I'll get right to it. The biggest one of those is we are not going to be doing much with drow going forward. And uh, the reason for that is uh, drow elves are pretty popular. They're really, really identified with Dungeons and Dragons and a lot of great work, uh, you know, making them super popular. But it's something that is a uh, entire element of the game environment that is so deeply enmeshed in the OGL that it's easier to move in a different direction than to try to figure out how to recast or recontextualize them. And so part of what this article does is it uh, updates the Darklands into the uh, second edition with new content. And we took that, we took advantage of that to also make a few adjustments and changes to some other OGL content and also to add in some new, brand new stuff. Um, so for example, the article itself talks a little bit about uh, hazards and dangers, you know, stuff that people are kind of probably used to, like lazarite ore and ghost mold and carboxyl gas and all of that. Uh, the ends up with a sort of a, a very quick uh, breakdown of the three layers of the darkness. Up the top, you've got Narboth that goes down to about 2,000 feet underground. Below that, you've got uh, the big sprawling second mina, which goes from about 2,000 feet underground to about 8,000 feet underground. And that's where you get a lot of the classic, you know, huge underground tunnels and caverns and stuff like that. And then deeper below second mina, you've got Org, which is where we, that's 8,000 feet or deeper. And that's where we put a lot of our, like, our lost world stuff, uh, hollow world things, you know. Um, and it's also a place that we have these uh, elemental creatures, the vault keepers and the vault builders, basically built all of these these almost terrariums, if you, if you will, deep down underground and use their powerful magic to enhance that area and allow it to be inhabitable. So it's not, you know, totally overwhelmed with heat and air pressure and stuff like that. And we've got a bit more about uh, the, these uh, vault keepers and vault builders and range of elements. So you can check those out pretty soon. Um, but the big central part of this article talks about the denizens of the Darklands. And some of those changes we're making, for example, are, um, let's see here, uh, Cavernels. You've seen us talk about cavernels before in a rulebook, but they've never really been contextualized in the, in the Darklands. We've given them a, a ancestral name, the Aendalar, and they're kind of elves that have they, they've got smaller, self-sufficient settlements. In the past, they had bigger, you know, cities and stuff deep down, spread out throughout the Darklands. But uh, the Serpent Folk have been, you know, the main villains of this whole region. Uh, Sekamina is named after their ancestry, the Sekmans, and so. The Aeondalar have kind of gone into uh, not necessarily not necessarily hiding. They're kind of they're they're low key, um, but they're kind of set up so like there's a lot of awful, gross, evil stuff in the Darklands. And Aeondalar settlements will be places for player characters to find like little pockets of safety. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, umbral uh, Umbral uh, gnomes, uh, Drathnalar is uh, what we're calling them, are another example of that. They're kind of a rename, reflavoring of the deep gnomes, which is a very uh, OGL creature, and so the Drathnalar and the Andalar are going to be good guys. I guess is one way to look at them for for the uh, the uh, the dark ones. Uh, we there's, got a couple um, others too, like um, yeah, Liz. Uh, yeah, I was I was going to say I think there's one in particular that I think John can tell us uh, quite a bit about. Uh, 
John and Vanessa can talk about uh, uh, Hringar a bit because I think they feature mm. uh, quite prominently in Sky King's Tomb. Do you want to? Uh, I'll let John take over first. Uh, tell us about uh, who the Hringar are and, and who you know what might be familiar about them. Yeah. Um, so Hringar, uh, you may have known of them as Dwargar before. Um, are basically a subterranean variant of dwarves, um, and they have they basically. Uh, splintered off from uh, many other dwarven communities around the start of that quest for sky that I brought up earlier, um, where they basically heard Torag's summons to the surface and said, eh, nah, um, and figure out their own way. Um, their own way involving perhaps some underhanded tactics for survival because the Dark Lines are not necessarily a friendly place. Um, here we can see one of their uh, mounted priests who's riding atop of a battle beetle um, that you'll get to encounter at some point in Sky King's tomb. Um, and their priest of Droskar, who is basically a, a deity of cheating and toil, um, who has become the patron of these of these Hringar. Um, Luis, do you want me to go into a little bit of how we adjusted one of their major social motivations? Um, sure, let's do it. Uh, might as well. We're, we're ripping off the band-aid in, the, in a sense, so let's talk about all of this if we can. Sure, because uh, after that, then I'm sure Vanessa is going to tell us a little bit about, about their vengeance and um, and uh, innate innate spells. So, um, one of the big concerns that we had in looking back at Hringars was that uh, one of the big things that really defined and focused their culture was slavery. And the past couple of years, Pice has really been looking back at um, the incorporation of and representation of slavery in our setting. To which the basic conclusion has been. Uh, no, thank you. Um, so when it came to presenting some adventure material that really highlights Ringars, it was like, oh, what, what do we do? We've taken one of their core premises away. Um, so one of my goals in working on Sky King's Tomb was to re-envision what makes the Ringar tick. Um, and rather than them uh, basically capturing slaves and holding kind of a shadow tradition, what they do is uh, Ringar society is driven by a pyramid scheme mentality, where um, whatever it is you do to help others sets up a series of obligations that they have to you, and that you get to claim credit for any of their subsequent uh, accomplishments. So if I'm a teacher, and I'm teaching you in your eighth grade class, and later on you go on to invent some sort of cool thing, I might, as your Hringar teacher, come to you later on and be like, hey, remember how I taught you um, like intro to biology early on, and you invented this thing? Uh, give me 2% of your patent earnings um, level stuff. So, so Hringar Society is a series of these obligations and nets and different machinations to try and remove as much of your own upline as you can while expanding as much of your own downline as you can. And so one of the things that this does preserve about Hringars is this idea of like bounty hunters and raiders and things like that. Um, but rather than Hringar going out and capturing potential chattel slaves, what they do is they basically have a, a catch-and-release program. They will go out, they will raid a society, they will knock down uh, people and be like, would you like to die or would you like to send me a part of your uh, proceeds as tribute uh, from now on and be part of my downline? Welcome to the club. Um, and if they fail to uh, pay up, then that's when they send in the second round of raiders who are far less forgiving. So basically what you're going to find in the course of Sky King's Tomb as you interact with some of these Shringar societies is that... Uh, the way that they go about their social interactions and their like tit for tat favors and commerce and whatnot might feel really alien because all of them are constantly on the lookout for how to 
incorporate somebody into their own long-term advantage scheme and how to avoid setting themselves up for their own exploitation. And what this does also is it means that in the course of revisiting how uh, Fringar's stats operate, uh, we also changed up some of their abilities. Vanessa, what does that look like? So we decided to take a look at the history of Hringar in Galarian, uh, and they're basically the dwarves that got left behind. So when Torag went to the dwarves and said, hey, y'all need to get up to the sky, and they said, sure thing, Torag, uh, they started to head up, and uh, some of those dwarves said, no, no, this, this is our home, we like it down here, we're going to stay behind, and the dwarves who left took all the good stuff, and so they're like, well, we want to stay behind behind in our home, but now we have nothing. Uh, and then they had to turn to Droskar, who said, I'll, I'll take care of you. You just stick with me, kid. And so the, the Hringar have this like huge, deep resentment. I think John once called it the power of butthurt uh, that sort of just drives them against Correct. the dwarves, the surface <laughs> dwarves, who are just like so frustrated that you betrayed us and left us behind. And we wanted that their innate spells and their magical abilities to reflect that. So now their innate spells are a cult, uh, which has to do with their long history and story and emotions. Um, and they all have the cantrip sigil. Uh, when you have such a society built on, I made that and that's mine and I'm the one who did it, you're going to put your mark on literally everything. So now they can just do that. Uh, so they can go up and they make a hammer or a document or a piece of artwork or whatever, and they'll put their maker's mark on it with sigil. Uh, they also have uh, two uh, new second level powers, which is pretty cool. Uh, one, of, one of which is my favorite, Blood Vendetta, which is literally, hey, you hurt me, I hurt you back reaction spell. Uh, and Paranoia, which also sort of makes sense for the society they've created of I'm not sure if I can trust you. Are you trying to take me out because I'm your upline? Or, you know, how, how is this relationship really working? I know that you're trying to be friendly. And paranoia is something that has kind of permeated the society because of all of the machinations of Hringar. So, so in review, those are uh, Sigil, Blood Vendetta, and Paranoia. And I, uh, I just, I really love this new line of spells that's all about, like... <laughs> watching your own and <laughs> getting back at other people and <laughs> so. the, the like Go ahead, I was just gonna joke that I like that they have a label maker just as an innate ancestral power. <laughs> yeah. Mine. Mine. <laughs> the Hingar are a good are a great example of where there were places where we found that we could take uh, older ideas and you know shape them in a new pathfinder stuff but you know like james mentioned you know drow isn't one of those where we could easily salvage those as it were um, there's a lot of baggage that come with drow there's a lot of connections and expectations that come with drow a lot of uh srd-ness a lot of dnd-ness that comes with drow that just we we kind of realize that it's unfortunately we're gonna have to just leave them behind in, in the remaster and that's why we went with the the i and um, uh, idea that we had cavern elves as a heritage in the core rulebook. Everyone's been asking for quite a while. Where are the cavern cavern elves? Are those drought? It turns out they're they're Ian Delar. Uh, they're, they're these new uh, elves that we're getting a chance to to explore. So there will be opportunities for us to look into those in the future. But uh, that this article is a, a, that that James worked on is at least a great 
uh, starting place for for a lot of these things. Um, and you you mentioned earlier that um, that serpent folk are really taking the role uh, of of villains of the Darklands. Uh, do you have uh, some thoughts on what might be happening with, with serpent folk uh, in the future, or, or, or the kind of stories that might be uh, being set up with them, James? Yeah, first of all, I'm really delighted that you grabbed this uh, cool illustration with the serpent folk <laughs> with the, the stylish uh, scarf on their head. Um, yeah, serpent folk uh, are something that we've kind of had in our setting for a long time. Uh, there are equal parts, you know, like from real world mythology, people are always kind of afraid of serpents and snakes and stuff like that. And, and like, uh, there's a there's kind of ties to pulp, uh, novels and stuff, uh, public domain and, and uh um, and even like more recently, you know, the whole fears of like the, the reptilians are invading the world. You know, that goes back to that awesome miniseries back in the 80s B, where it's like these aliens look like humans, but surprise, they, uh, they want to eat us. Um, so a lot of that went into the inspiration for uh, our serpent folk, who are known uh, in their language as Sekmens. The Sekmen, of course, is uh, the root word for Sekamina. And way back in the, in the before times uh, during like Aslan, uh, era before Earthfall, they pretty much ruled all of the Darklands. And there was big wars between them and the people of Anslant. And uh, the people of Anslant won their deity. Uh, Yudersius got his head chopped off, but he's a god, so he kept going after his head got chopped off. He just wasn't as organized, I guess. Um, but uh, so what we're doing now is we still have a bunch of, in Sekamina, we have a bunch of these, you know, spooky uh, underground cities of, uh, originally were, were drow cities. Uh, we are basically changing that so that they are now serpent folk cities. All of these areas in second minor are serpent folk, serpent folk segment strongholds. Um, one of them, like uh, Farparafia, is a place where the serpent folk have like all of their debauchery going on and stuff like that. We've got a couple of uh, serpent folk um, uh, segment cities down on the, the, inter- the underground giant lake down there that are like pirate spots and places for trade and all of that. And they're really, they're, their main goal, their main role in the whole thing is kind of like they are planning to come up from below and take over everything and replace humanity. And uh, it's sort of building up this whole idea that they're this very organized, powerful, uh, villainous race of our villainous and not just a group that is that is out to get us. And that's something that um, in the early days we were we were trying to setting up Yando Klein's story and Karai Asma's stories like they're trying to hide this truth because they didn't they didn't want to scare people but uh, the truth is out there now I guess. Um, one thing that this sets up that is actually kind of fun is the the big city of Zernikanen, which uh, is a is our giant three level uh, drow city has kind of been re uh, contextualized into a, a mystery. Nobody really knows now who built Zernikanen. Uh, it's kind of at the heart of the Darklands, both, you know, under the inner sea, both in the middle of Sekamina and uh, above and below. It's uh, it's at the middle of the, the Sekman Empire, but the Sekmans didn't build it. They're afraid of what's going on in there. And uh, what is really going on in Zernikane and for real is something we're kind of are, are feeding into this article is like, we aren't saying yet, but we might sometime in the future. So a lot of this article is really setting up future potential for what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Darklands if we go a into a deeper dive into the region going forward. Yeah. I think uh, something like a Lost Omen's Darklands feels inevitable. Just we need to find a spot on the schedule for that and then figure out sure. how much of the Darklands we can really show off because it's so enormous. You know, even 300 pages would be just scratching 
the underground surface, as it were. Uh, Wait, Luis, uh, does we that mean that we're getting three Dark Lens books? One for every layer? <laughs> hey! <laughs> John, I thought you loved me uh, as a human being and didn't want me to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no promises, but no. Uh, the There's been a couple of questions that have come in uh, via the Twitch chat, and that was one of them, if there was a possibility for a Dark Lens Lost Omens book, and I think absolutely <laughs> it's just... Uh, it's one of those that has been a a small bit of snow that's been slowly rolling and it will be inevitably an avalanche that we have to d- contend with at some point. We just can see it and we're like, eh, it's not too big quite, quite yet. We'll, we'll deal with it later. Um, but there were a, a couple of other questions here. Uh, and I think one of them ties into uh, that whole uh, mystery you set up with the city, uh, James, is uh, if there's any advice for GMs running existing content with Drow in them or, or you know, I'm going to expand on that. If anyone wants to continue using Drow in their Pathfinder 2e uh, games, they can still do that, right? There, there's, there's nothing. We're not oh, yeah. coming into your house and saying, "Stop that! Cut that out! No more Drow!" or anything like that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're still in Bestiary One. There's a lot of uh, Drow rules we've already published. All of that stuff is still out there. I mean, that that stuff will still, you know, be available for you to play around with. Uh, it's going to stay on. Uh, online resources like Archives of Nethys. We're not going to scrub the pre-remaster uh, stuff from reality. That's that's all still open for people to play with in their home games. Um, it's just not something that we are going to be uh, focusing on going forward. As it's going uh, from going into the remastered uh, content, it just focuses us in different areas and we're, we're doing our own thing. So um, how that, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's something that every group is going to have to decide for themselves. Like one of my favorite uh, PCs that I sort of incorporated into the setting is Shenson. And in the uh, post-apocalyptic Forgotten Realms game, I played her as a PC. And in Jason Nelson's game, she started out as a drow. And then there was a reincarnation event that happened one of the times after she got killed by something. Jason Nelson kills my characters a lot. She comes back as an exotic <laughs> elf. And that whole thing, it was like a random role, but it just made such a cool character element. I, I kind of leaned into that. So in that specific example going forward, you'll notice that in uh, Firebrands, Shenson has a page in there where she's got some stuff going on. It doesn't really go into the details of her history, uh, where she came from. And, and it, it's not really even that necessary. So the Forgotten Realms or the, the Larian version of her, she's just always been a aquatic uh, half-elf, which... That I actually learned just yesterday that we have a, a cool name for Half Hills now, which is delightful. Yeah. 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 I, I like to think this whole thing with Drow is, you know, if there were a giant house where every single creature lived their own room, you know, every single aspect of the setting lived in their own room, we've just decided we're going to turn off the lights in that Drow room and go look elsewhere in the house and see what else is going on. But anyone in their home game can bring a flashlight and shine light back in that room or come in and, you know, make that a, a place they're hanging out with. Uh, Joke's on you, the lights are already out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, please use, use uh, you know, draw in your game if you, if you want to continue those stories. Uh, any previous material still works. Uh, and, you know, there there's a cavern elf heritage that can get you at least part of the way there. We won't be publishing any kind of heritage or, or ancestry for them. Because you know we're we're looking at other things going forward, but we really hope that um, you you like what we're doing with the Iandalar and 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 the the other folks of the of the, uh, the Darklands. Uh, Caligni's are still going to be around. Uh, Darrow's are still there. Flesh warps are around. A, a lot of the dangers and fun stuff 
fun uh, things that you can find in the Darklands. It's still going to be around. It's just there's a, a bit of a shuffle at who's sitting at the table at this point. Uh, we got a few more questions. Let me see if there's anything here. Um, the I think this is an, a pretty interesting question. Did we find that the reevaluation of current lore because of this whole OGL thing ended up driving a lot more innovation? Uh, and I would say yes. I think there's been a lot of interesting ideas that have come about here. Um, I don't know if anyone else has thoughts on uh, the the forced uh, invention and innovation that we've been kind of uh, put to at this point. Yeah, any obstacle is going to drive innovation. Anytime we have a challenge, it's like, okay, well, now we can't just rest on the existing lore. We need to really revisit it, think up new ideas, and apply all the lessons that we've learned as professionals over the years um, that um, might not have gone into the original conceptualization of some of these uh, creatures or places, but now that we can bring to bear. So it's it's always fun to revisit these places, even if it means more work. Yeah, I think it definitely helped us. I know when John and I were developing through Sky King's Tomb, uh, before the January fiasco happened, there was a lot of uh, how do we stay true to like the spirit and the um, and the history of this of, of the Hringar of these underground dwarves, and how do we move forward? And we already had some of the pieces that we wanted to change in place, uh, like John's multi-level marketing uh, frame up of <laughs> of these underground dwarf society. But once the the fiasco happened, and and we by necessity needed to further separate out these ideas it really gave us a lot of freedom to say well if we're redesigning these from the ground up keeping in mind existing canon how can we change it so that it's more pathfinder how can we change it uh, and how can we reinvent this in a way that we no longer need to be as tied to the history of this particular uh, particular ancestry and take our own direction with it. And so I think this has freed us up quite a bit to, to do new and interesting things. Mm -hmm. Eleanor, I know you've been working a lot with our Monster Core book, and it's not just Darklands-related creatures, but I know you've been able to, to pull upon like mythology and, and folklore and stuff to do interesting stuff and just come up with new monsters. Is there anything in particular that you've done recently that you found was really fun or, or exciting? Uh, for for upcoming monster teases, I guess a little bit. Uh, I mean, way back before the Monster Core, um, there are these little critters in Impossible Lands, known mm -hmm. as the Kasesh, um, who were created by the Vault Keepers uh, to, and they basically have a word imprinted on them. And the interesting thing about them is when you bring one of them close to another one, they sort of react like as if you had turned them into a grammatical construction so if you if you bring the you know a a word kasesh close to a fire kasesh you, you start getting some fiery speech out of them in every sense of the word um <laughs> to the point where they don't actually like being near one another um and one of them did show up in uh because he is one of the three of Nex, although he hasn't been seen for a while. But uh, I, I definitely loved those little guys. I kind of hope they show up, but maybe one at a time. It gets really messy if there's uh, more than one of them. Um, but yeah, um, because of the changes with drow and flesh warping, just as sort of a, a tidbit, you're more likely to see flesh warps coming up out of the dark lands 
especially the inner curse. Uh, that would be the one that was formerly an elf, specifically. Um, we're, we're definitely going to be tweaking Flesh Corpse as it goes forward, but uh, the inner curse still remains one that is specifically used to be an elf. Um, and the fact that they keep coming up out of the Darklands, uh, even, even if we don't necessarily have Drow down there, is extremely concerning, I, I feel, for a lot of elves, especially because uh, when Earthfall happened, a group of elves went underground, and some of them resurfaced in Tiansha, that's the nation of Jinnin, and another group split off and went further underground. And so when you, when you start getting these like pillars of flesh and teeth, that are coming up out of the Darklands and that despise all elves, uh, <laughs> you start to be kind of concerned about what happened down there. Oh, James? <laughs> no, that, or, or is that this just sparked a... A, uh, No, this, this definitely sparked something in my head. We've got this town, uh, this underground city in um, uh, called Umberweb, which is in the very, very earliest edition. That's where, like, that's where we said that Driders are not like second-class citizens, and they can have their own empire and stuff like that because there's all of this gross history with how the Drow and previous editions of the game are like they they treat Driders as lesser. But so Umberweb is, I think, a great place where we can uh, explore having a lot of fleshworks basically living in an entire city. Um, it's located kind of under Varicia, and we've already got a long tradition of like the Rune Lords meddling around with flesh warping, with Sin Spawn and stuff like that. And uh, that's a case where it's like these changes to established lore are allowing us to, you know, refocus and build something that just makes more sense geographically for the setting. So it's exciting. I got two quick questions that I want to see if I can sneak in here before we, we end uh, the panel. Uh, first one was a question related to technology. Uh, fireworks and clockworks in the Darklands. The question was, would it make sense to have a gunslinger or inventor in a Darklands campaign or gadgets and clockwork enemies down there? I mean, I think broadly the answer is yes, but there's a specifically the, the clicking caverns in Tian Sha, uh, which are full of clockworks. So it's a perfect place for, for that kind of thing. And, and the Darklands are just enormous. So you're going to find something that's weird. Um, I mean, technically, uh, didn't the dwarves invent guns while trapped underground? Um, back in the day, back near Alkenstar, if I remember right. Yep. So, or was that a Dungenhold <laughs> yeah. response to being in the Mana Wastes? Yeah, the Dungen in well, Dungenhold. Well, no, so. basically, they were, they went deep underground to the point where they didn't <laughs> have to deal with anything up there anymore. But even even deep underground, the magic had basically died, uh, and they're just like, "Hey, we've got this explosive stuff that we got from our our other dwarf friends. Let's fuck around with that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, the, well, the and other also, one was... oh, I was going to say that the Hringar uh, have some technological presence. Um, it's more of a group of engineers reverse engineering the technology they find from other cultures. Uh, but <laughs> with Dungan Hold's creation of the gun and uh, a lot of clockwork and new technology coming out of Alkenstar, some of that has filtered to them. So in the... Uh, in, in the adventure path, uh, you're going to see at least one Hringar with a neat clockwork device. So it, they are starting yeah. to get those sorts of inventions. Uh, all the more to be scared of Hringar, I guess, at this point, if they can <laughs> <laughs> robot arms and stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, the other question Ooh. I wanted to jump in real quick on was, uh, someone was asking, hey, can you tell us about the archetype or archetypes found in High Helm? There is one archetype. It's the stalwart defender. 
uh, it's all about being tough and armored and normally is available to all dwarves. But if you happen to be in Highhelm or a different city that teaches a technique, you can learn uh, the stalwart defender techniques and, and take the, the archetype yourself. Uh, the, the big thing is the archetype gives you a specific stance that you enter, which gives you some bonus, uh, some temp HP and makes it harder to push you around. And while you're in this stance, then you can activate different abilities and tap into the power of mountains and stoutness and rocks and stuff. So things like uh, helping you on fortitude saves against sickened because rocks don't get sick, so why should you? Or the ability to stomp on the ground and create like mini earthquakes that create difficult terrain around you, or even become as hard as a rock and gain resistance to uh, damage for a little bit, which is pretty fun. Check that out in High Helm next month, but I think we're out of time here so i'm going to go around the horn real quick and uh, ask everyone if they want to plug anything or, or, or themselves on the internet i will just say i'm Luis loza at luisloza.com and i'm wearing one of the savage sparrow studios pathfinder merch shirts <laughs> so go check out savage Spar sparrow studios if you want some cool pathfinder merch uh going clockwise again james Hey, James Jacobs. I'm sort of a social media hermit, uh, but you can always find me at the Paizo uh, message boards. I, I'm lurking around uh, the, the uh, Pathfinder Second Edition Reddit a lot. Folks want to, you know, ask more questions about the the new direction of the Darklands or all of that stuff. I'm doing an Ask Me Anything thread over on Discord. I'll be lurking there pretty much the rest of the day, and we'll be peeking in on and off as long as uh, we keep that whole thing going. I don't know how long we're gonna, it's going to stay up, but yeah, <laughs> check it out. I'm wearing. A special Paizo uh, shirt that you can pick up <laughs> to come to work at Paizo and get drafted into working at a convention. <laughs> I'm John Compton. Uh, I hang out on the Starfinder and Pathfinder fan discords. Um, you can also find me on the Paizo Advanced server, where also an ask me anything question, whether you want to follow up on anything in this panel or anything else. Um, and yeah, and then sometimes on the Paizo.com message boards. I'm Vanessa Hoskins, uh, and you can find me uh, on Twitch at NinjaCatVanessa. Uh, I also have an AMA in the, uh, in the Discord. Um, you, those are probably the best places to get me. And if you uh, were able to attend the last panel, the Build and Adventure, uh, I am itching to share more of the cool things that we didn't get to. So if you bother me enough in the AMA, I might show you some of the slides that we didn't quite get to. <laughs> Uh, I'm Eleanor Farron, and much like James, I do not wish to be perceived online, and you're probably happier not perceiving me online, but I do have a little <laughs> cobalt buddy um, that you can buy on our website or at other licensed toy retailers, and I highly encourage you to do so they can form a horde and conquer the planet. And importantly, so well, that there are more sales that uh, people are incentivized to make more so Eleanor can buy more of them and have even less apartment space. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Hey, I see. I see people asking for baby cave worm plushies. The more, the better that this cobalt plushie does, and the additional goblin plushie that came out with it. The more likely you are to see more plushies. Like the warp one we just announced a bit ago. So, well, thanks everybody uh, warp, for coming to the warp, panel. Warp. <laughs> we warp warp. We'll just hand off with that. Goodbye, everybody. Warp warp warp. Thank you for joining us for this installment of the PaizoCon Online 2023 Seminar Coverage, brought to you by Paizo and the No Direction Network. For more great gaming podcasts, visit nodirectionpodcast.com.